Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, calling in from Texas, is my friend Nathan Smith. Welcome to the podcast, Nathan. Thank you, Richard. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, Nathan offered a wonderful prayer before we started. I've wondered if I should start recording those prayers, because those prayers are... (laughs) pretty tender, and it's kind of just, just that technology that Nate is offering that prayer in Texas. Do you go by Nathan or Nate? Uh, my family calls me Nate. Most people call me Nathan. Either or works, to be honest. Well, I'm going to call you Nathan in this podcast, because you've got Nathan on Twitter, and that's that seems official to me. But just by, <laughs> way, of, by way of introduction <laughs> to our listeners, um, Nathan is, an, is LDS. He is a 25. He's a student at college in Texas. We'll talk more about that. Um, he's a psychology undergraduate. Talk about his career wanting to become a therapist. He served a mission in California, Fresno, grew up in the church in Texas. And that's really where I want to pick up the story in some ways, the unique exp- mission experience that he had that he shared in a Facebook post. Um, Nathan is pretty typical LDS person. He, after his mission, he stepped away, and we're going to talk about his journey and why he stepped away after his mission and and why now he is kind of stepping back into the church. And Nathan is just unique. As I followed him on Twitter and as I've read some of his posts, he has a wonderful feeling about our church, about the mission of Christ. But as we'll talk about, Nathan is not a round peg going into a round hole. He's a square peg, and his worldview is just a little different. He's straight. He's cisgender, so it's not an LGBTQ podcast. But it's just a podcast of a wonderful YSA, and I've met many that just don't quite fit the cultural narrative or quite fit in. And And I love sharing these stories of someone who's different in a good way. And I wouldn't want to change, Nathan, but I think if you're feeling a little different or feeling like you're a square peg sometimes, I think Nathan's story will resonate with you as just somebody who's really thoughtful, wonderful Christian trying to do the best they can. So anything I need to correct with that introduction, Nathan? Uh, no, I think you uh, I think you hit the high points there. <laughs> so talk about um, how long did you live in Houston? Because my wife's from Houston. I actually only lived there the first couple of years of my life. So just I, I moved at like two. I have some really early memories from Houston, like NASA and uh, watching some hot air balloons, but that's about it. (laughs) And then you grew up, tell our listeners where you grew up. I grew up mostly outside of Austin in a town called Cedar Park. Okay. And um, if I had met you in high school, were you, did you go to seminary? Were you a seminary graduate? Were you anticipating serving a mission? Uh, yeah, I, I was kind of a weird, uh, Mormon kid. Even back then I, I went to seminary every morning, uh, in Texas, we do seminary very, very early. So like, I think it, if I remember correctly, it was 6am, uh, each morning, which was awful. Um, and I was that kid who would sleep through seminary every morning. Um, but I was very passionate about, um, church history, about Mormon thought in general, always reading outside of seminary and, uh, so I, I was very much into um, the church, even though I was sleeping through seminary. And yeah, I, I, I had um, I had pretty much just the assumption that I was going to go on a mission until I was about 18 or so when it moved from an assumption to something I deliberately wanted. And as it sounds like those, you were more aware of our history and trying to become well-read and 
searching for different, uh, searching externally and internally for materials. Is that true? And did you feel like yeah. compared to most men your age serving a mission when you got to the MTC, you understood a lot more about our history and our current issues and sort of a worldview? Yeah. Um, I, well, I mean, just, just a little bit of my own history. I mean, since I was 13, I started sort of hitting the books as it were really hard uh, when it came to religion in general and especially um, Mormonism for obvious reasons, you know, being Mormon and growing up Mormon. I just wanted to understand and, um, you know, I, when I was 16 or 17, I had a big faith crisis, and I ended up working my way through that on my own. And it led me to uh, a little group called Fair Mormon that I did uh, a lot of volunteer work for from December 2011 to right up to my mission, March 2013. Um, people would email in questions that they had about church history and um, culture or doctrine or thought in general. And uh, I was one of the people who would try to help them explore those questions. So I, I ended up being very well-versed with um Primarily with a lot of, um, I guess we could call it anti-Mormon criticism, but also just in general, sort of the the narrative of the church's history, um, as well as the different versions, shall we say, that can uh, pop up in Mormon culture. So yeah, I, I had a good background that um, helped me to get a, a, for myself at least, a very detailed understanding of Mormonism that I, I thought would help serve me as a missionary. Were there many people at Fair Mormon pre-mission doing what you were doing? Yeah, um, I, I was a part of an email list of, I I can't remember quite how many people. There were some people who were on the list who would just receive the emails to kind of follow the conversations. But I remember at least a dozen names, made some really good friends uh, who are still very active in like groups like um, Interpreter, which is a, a journal going on right now. And I have a friend who's... Uh, pursuing a PhD in Egyptology and another friend who's working with Book of Mormon Central. So it, I, I got to meet like a couple dozen, shall we say, uh, some really good people who are still kind of involved in the more apologetic side of, of uh, the church. Talk about your faith crisis um, at age 16, 17. Most men that are sort of wondering about the church at that age and potentially stepping away, it's sometimes it's not usually a faith crisis because they come aware of our church history. It's, it's more kind of, you know, so I sense you really understood about our, our history or our current issues. And was that part of your faith crisis or just kind of walk our listeners through the reasons and how you resolved it? Yeah. Um, you know, funny enough, I, so all of my, all of my siblings are at this point ex Mormon for various reasons. Um, and I would say various good reasons, reasons that I think are considerable. Um, and among those reasons, some of them are historical. Um, funny enough, though, historical issues have never really played a, a problem in my own life. They've never really triggered anything like a faith crisis. I've actually very much enjoyed the, uh, the uncomfortably human Joseph Smith, mostly because I, I think that I can identify with the, uh, the craziness of his life a lot better than I can with the, uh, the untouchable saint Joseph Smith. Um, the, the biggest struggles for me when I was 16 and 17 were um, actually twofold. One was the exclusive claims of the church, so rhetoric around things like the, the only true and living church, for instance, and how traditionally we pitched ordinances um, in a, a very, in my view, very legalistic way. Uh, that was one thing. And the other thing was the atonement of Christ. Um, a lot of our atonement talk comes from a very Protestant Christian background, 
um, in ways that we often don't even realize. And that, in turn, comes from a very medieval understanding of atonement that focuses on God's wounded sense of justice or a, a universal principle of justice that demands a kind of uh, penal calculus, as it were. So someone, you know, we've all sinned and mucked everything up here on Earth, and there's something in the universe that's keeping tally, and so someone's got to bleed for it. So it might as well be the most innocent one. And to me, this was a very repugnant narrative, and obviously this is a bit of a, a caricature of it. But um, that was something that really struck me. I remember actually very openly debating my dad and one of my sisters about it, um, very just very unimpressed with with that particular interpretation of the atonement and not really having any healthy alternative to that. So those were those were kind of the two biggest issues um, that actually working with Fair Mormon in part really helped me to explore because it gave me a, a number of different perspectives, put me in contact with a number of different um, Mormon and non-Mormon writers and thinkers that uh, helped me to broaden my views and realize that there are more options uh, than just what I felt that I was seeing. You're a very good communicator, Nathan. Um, you're a really bright guy. I think our listeners are picking up on that right now, and I've certainly picked on that. Very articulate and well-read, and I think it's a wonderful Christ-like attribute of you. How did you... Um, how do you feel about the exclusivity claims that this is the only true and living church? Um, that's a, that is a very difficult question to answer in any short or concise way, unfortunately. Um, but I think that for me personally, it's not so much, um, I recently wrote about this a little bit. In fact, that, uh, I sort of borrowed from another Mormon philosopher named Adam Miller who I think put it really well. He says that uh, for questions like, is the church true? The, the, the problem that I see with this question is not so much that it's you know, disagreeable, that the answer is no. It's that I think that this binary is a little too small to grasp the, the totality of the church and its development and its history and its, the ways that it's changed and adapted and grown and evolved to meet the needs of its people. So it's not so much that I... Uh, would say no to that question. It's just that I, I don't think that it's um, enough to really capture the issue, if that makes sense. It does, and I have certainly pondered and wrestled with that question. I, I think yeah. I can say for me and, and my family as, um, as traditional believing Mormons who are all in, that mm -hmm. the church is true. It is our path. It's brought me light and hope and happiness and I've seen other people join the church, and I've seen that the church is true for them, but I have seen people thrive in other religions, and I don't feel—I just sort of leave that at the Savior's feet and don't wonder—you know, I, I would sense they're having similar experiences in their church, and I would think a loving Heavenly Father would want the world religions to bring joy and happiness to those that are following the relig world religions that are based on good— principles. And so that's kind of the way I've navigated that. And it's, to use your language, it's less binary. Um, and it's more just trying to see things from a loving Heavenly Father wants to bless all of His children. So I don't know how that well, I, resonates with you. 
I, I actually think that that's very much um, the perspective I'm coming from. I think you and I, though we perhaps might use different language to describe this, I think you and I are very much on the same page. Um, there's, there's actually a, a joke that I like very much. Uh, it's told by a, a philosopher named Slavoj Zizek. He's Eastern European, and that's why his name rolls right off the tongue. Um, but it's, it's, it's something like this, this man enters a, a cafe, and he sits down, and the waiter comes to him and asks him, uh, what can I get you? He says, I'd like a coffee, uh, no milk. And the waiter looks at him, and he kind of scrunches his nose and thinks to himself, and he says, I'm sorry, sir, we're all out of milk, but we have cream. Would you like coffee without cream? And so, um, obviously, it's, it's the, the, the punchline of this is obviously there's no difference between coffee without milk or coffee without cream. But I think in an ideological sense and uh, in an identitarian sense, and even just in a religious sense, in this case, in, in the case of our own church, I think a lot of people, their identity is built upon not just positive statements of who they are, but negative statements of who they aren't. And uh, I think that that, I think, is where we start to run amok uh, when it comes to having healthy relationships with non-Mormon religions or even um, non-religious people in general, when we create an identity that is that uh, relies upon not being the other guy. So in my case, uh, personally, just to kind of extend this uh, joke to death, I, for me, Mormonism isn't so much about coffee without milk or coffee without uh, cream, but just coffee. I just want to talk about coffee. That's cool. That is really thoughtful. Um, and I felt we shouldn't have like a purity test where only those that can say, I know the church is true and it's the only living church are welcome in our church. I. I know many people that feel that way, and I don't want them to stop feeling that way. But yeah. there are a group of people that believe this church is true for them and is truth and is their path. We're uncomfortable sort of saying other paths aren't legitimate or equally as valuable for that person. And I would want those people that feel that way to feel welcome at church and not to sort of have a purity test. Um, and, I and I think we can do that and be and answer the temple in questions um, and still see good in other religions. So you're unique in the sense you're – I'm thinking of my sons that are, you know, not to be critical of my own sons, but they're not going down mm -hmm. these sort of um, really thoughtful roads um, that I think is part of who you were in the premortal experience and your Christ-like attributes and your mission here on earth is – pretty unique. And so talk about the um, mission. I, I know you did this Facebook post and maybe we'll link to it in the podcast and we send it out. Just That'd talking good, about... just in case I, uh, <laughs> I miss anything. <laughs> but it's a, it's a long Facebook post and it talks about you served a full mission all two years, but it wasn't easy. Um, and there's a lot of people that have, you know, I think need stories of people that had difficult missions because they had difficult missions and we sort of mm -hmm. sometimes don't talk about that and be honest about that. Yeah. Um, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that, um, when I, when I came home from my mission, one of the things that helped me the most to be able to open up about my experiences was hearing the stories of other missionaries, some of whom suffered exponentially worse experiences than I did. Um, and, and hearing them speak with the kind of courage that it required of them to, to, to speak to a, a community that isn't always the most interested in hearing these particular stories, that very much inspired me to tell mine. 
Um, so as uh, I think you mentioned this already, I, I served in the California Fresno mission. I began my mission on March 27th of 2013. That's when I entered the MTC and I ended up in the field in uh, early April. And then I completed my mission on the 25th of March, 2015. Um, since then, the, the California Fresno mission has split in half. So it's the California Fresno and Modesto missions. But uh, mine was sort of the combination of, I think it's both of those put together was the mission that I served in. And you talk about having, it was difficult to fit in with other elders. And yeah. just, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. yeah, so tell, share with our listeners, just kind of take you, take us to the first six months of your mission um, and just how you were feeling and not fitting in and the tension and uh, maybe even your emotional health and just how you're processing this. Absolutely. Um, so <laughs> the the first shocking realization is that at 19, I was not ready to leave home. Um, so I, I hadn't quite lived on my own before then. So going to the MTC and everything was sort of my first uh, entrance into the real world outside of family. And uh, for me personally, there was a good deal of homesickness. And I found that uh, that was the most positively received struggle that uh, that I had on my mission. A lot of people in the MTC were very uh, empathetic about that. I think that it's not obviously not unique to me. Um, so I, you know, I, I had a lot of support from people who were very interested in helping me to feel comfortable, uh, comfortable enough to stay out on the, in the field. But um, there were also a number of uh, a number of I think intellectual and we could say methodological disagreements uh, between me and missionaries, especially in the first six months that unfortunately uh, set the stage for the uh, remaining three quarters of my mission. Um, part of that, I think, was built upon the fact that for me personally, I had made it a very, uh, how should I put this? For me, it was very important to understand my religion as deeply as I possibly could and to grapple with the difficult questions, including questions that may have only come from people who were perceived as just another anti-Mormon critic. I was very interested in making sure that I understood what I was doing. I didn't want to um, market a religion that uh, I only wanted to be good and true and powerful. Uh, so I think that uh, that created some divides, and I don't mean divides in the sense that, oh, I was I was so much smarter than everybody else, but divides in the sense that I ended up interpreting the church in much less absolutistic terms. I think that the mission program is very strong and uh, very inspiring to a lot of young uh, members of the church because it, uh, it thinks in terms of black and white. It creates these very emotionally charged absolutes that can be very inspiring to a lot of young people. Um, and it, it, it triggers this kind of sense of urgency where they go out and they go and they invite people to be baptized or to at least take the missionary lessons to come join us at church. And my own view is not necessarily quite as emotionally urgent. Um, and so I think that for me personally, when I would see this black and white view, at my worst moments, I would be very immature in how I responded to it. At my best moments, it still felt like... Um, like it was part of the church, like it should be a welcome perspective. And I still feel that way today. You know, I, people like me don't necessarily build mission programs that succeed in any way, any substantial way. Um, but the inverse was not necessarily true. 
um, young men and women who thought in these very black and white terms would see my perspective and they would perceive me as uh, quote unquote liberal. Uh, I was accused of not having a testimony, of not being converted. Uh, throughout my mission, I was told that uh, I don't want to baptize and I was, in fact, uh, at least once referred to by one mission leader as a cancer to areas. Wow. So, yeah, that was um, that was a harder one to learn about. Um, but gradually through my mission, I learned these rumors were circulating about me that in large part I knew nothing about uh, of, of Elder Smith, the missionary who struggled. And I had no idea about these stories. If I knew about them, I'd probably have tried much harder to... Um, to correct them, to be frank. But, and as you know, Richard, from the post, that exploded in a couple of uh, unfortunate ways. But we can get to that. Uh, and you're, you're very, you've said a couple of phrases here that are really interesting, emotionally charged absolutes and liberal and not converted. And, um, and I would guess if you're serving a mission and all the work you've done with Fair Mormon and all the deep praying um, an effort you've done, you've been very, very serious about your religion, and you've taken this decision very seriously to serve a mission. It wasn't just sort of caught up in the tide of everything going on, and I think if you um, didn't believe, you would have not um, stayed very long. So I, you know, I sense you're someone who is very committed and wants to do the right thing, but wants to be authentic with how they believe, and is just wired differently and in a good way. Um, talk, were there examples of how you wanted to handle an investigator situation and how another missionary did to illustrate that conflict? Or Yeah, um, the one that comes immediately to mind, and this is an extreme example even for my own mission, So, um, but I think it's illustrative in a way. Uh, there was one missionary I knew about who was sort of notorious for inviting people to be baptized within the first 20 seconds to two minutes of meeting them. Um, and if they said no, then his, his judgment was, well, they're not prepared, so we drop them, wash our hands of them. And um, I, I was, as a 19-year-old who wasn't always very civil, um, I, I was very outspoken at times about this kind of method. And again, this was the extreme example, but there were a number of shades between, or lower than that, were less extreme, but still, I think, quite problematic in a way. And uh, I, I would think about my mom, who's uh, a convert. All of my, my, both my parents are converts, and both their parents are converts. I have no pioneer heritage, so I'm very familiar with um, the the idea of what it's like to be someone who grew up non-Mormon entering the church, even though I grew up in it myself. And uh, I remember one phone call with my mom, and I was so confused about this method because it seemed so different to me from how I understood uh, the church and from my own experience of Mormonism. And I asked her, uh, if missionaries had told you at, at 15, you know, within 20 to two minutes, 20 seconds to two minutes of meeting you, will you be baptized? What would you have said? She said, you know, I think as most people would, no, and it would have been very off-putting for her. And so there was this real strong cognitive and spiritual dissonance of what I felt I was being trained to do and rewarded for doing and at times even punished for not doing in the mission field on the one hand versus what I believed was the more concrete on-the-ground reality on the other. 
I love that. It's very well t- articulated. Did you find you were connecting with investigators that your companions realized you were connecting with in a way they couldn't? And did you Absolutely. all, and any, do you want to share any of those where, because I'm guessing there's some investigators that maybe even talked to lots and lots of missionaries and Elder Nathan Smith comes along and, and you connect with them in a way perhaps other missionaries aren't able to. Yeah. Um, there's, there's two people that come to mind, in fact. Um, I'm, I'm sure I, I would like to think that there's more. Uh, but the first two that come to mind, one was when I, when I first entered my area, uh, when I got my trainer um, and I, I entered my area, there was a, a part member family. The wife was uh, a member. Her daughter was a member. And she was married to a gentleman, very nice gentleman, who, um, who wasn't a member. And he had sort of, um, you, you know, he had been given the whole gamut uh, by other missionaries who had tried very, very hard, um, harder than I ever tried to be frank, um, to get him to take the missionary lesson. And I remember the first time I met him, just sort of talking to the family, getting to know them. And I'm just some, you know, fish out of water. I have no idea what's going on. I'm just scared and homesick. And I already feel the tension between me and much of the mission culture in general. And uh, I just sort of got to let them know about me a little bit about uh, things that I had done as like an independent writer before my mission. And they got really interested in my life and I just told them about myself. And um, I remember meeting, I think it was either the mom or the daughter that Sunday at church. And she told me and my trainer that that was the first time that her husband had ever had such a lengthy conversation with a missionary that he had ever opened up that much to a missionary I think that, um, well, I said a little bit self-deprecatingly before that I'm, my personality is not the kind that builds very uh, <laughs> num- uh, a successful mission programs in the terms of, uh, of quotas and numbers. I do think that my willingness to talk to someone without a goal in mind, to talk to someone without, the, without valuing that conversation upon whether or not they join the church or take the lessons or commit to be baptized, I think very much warmed this man's heart. And about a year later, he was baptized by my trainer. I, I wasn't, I was fortunately unable, unfortunately unable to uh, attend that baptism, but he was baptized and I believe his, I believe he was sealed to his wife uh, about, about a year or so afterward. They came and saw me off at the end of my mission as well. They're, I consider them good friends. That's a that's, great story. That's, sorry, that, I was just going to say that's just one example. Any other examples? That is a great story. That makes the whole mission worth it, <laughs> Elder Smith. Absolutely, they're they're good, lovely people. I I, uh, I I miss them very much. I think they they took very good care of me. Uh, they sensed my homesickness, and I think they sensed a lot of my own uh, my own uh, feeling of being adrift in mission culture. Basically, of feeling like I don't belong, let alone you know don't fit in, let alone belong, and you know and. Uh, I, they, they were very helpful to me in that regard. Uh, but th- there was another gentleman about halfway through my mission. I was uh, living up in the mountains outside of Yosemite National Park, a beautiful area, one of my favorites, um, in part because it was so isolated from the rest of the mission that I could just be the little mountain hermit that I always wanted to be. <laughs> but um, there was a gentleman who was uh, – he was in – in the official terminology, he was an investigator, I think in a, a more realistic uh, description would be that he was just 
very fascinated by missionaries. He's a very evangelical person. He was a very passionate believer in Christ, a very passionate Christian. Um, this is the kind of guy who would take his own son up into the mountains alone with him and baptize him himself with a very passionate spiritual experience. That's the kind of guy he was. And he was also very well read. So he he knew the whole uh, you know pantheon of modern biblical scholars, New Testament scholars, Hebrew Bible scholars, and I was also very familiar with a lot of these names. So we would have these real lengthy conversations about scholars we both enjoyed, lengthy conversations that I would hope benefited him, but also which benefited me. I remember, in fact, one of those conversations quite pivotally shaped my own view of priesthood within our church from a gentleman who was not at all a Mormon and while not at all interested in uh, becoming a Mormon, was uh, very ecumenical. He was very positive toward uh, other, other, other people who were seeking after Christ. I, I remember just being able to, to establish a relationship with him that I don't think missionaries previous to myself had been able to quite get to. I love those stories. Um, I share this quote a lot in our podcasts, and fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be in order to be accepted. Belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. And and we talk. I talk about that a lot in the sense of LGBTQ, but this is a different example of that where you. it's really hard for you to fit in. Um, mm. And I'm, I sense the tension. I'm looking at a square peg trying to be pounded into a round hole <laughs> visually, and there's just tension on the corners of that peg. And I'm sensing that's a lot of what you felt about with the mission culture and the focus on numbers and quick results and and you being a square peg, because God made you a square peg, Elder Smith. There's not <laughs> a lot of square pe- square holes. And, and so you even use the word belong. It's hard even to belong sometimes. But then you have these moments where, you know, you're able to connect with somebody because um, because of the way you are in a unique and authentic way. And and to me, that's the beauty of of the the beautiful diversity that's present in the members of our faith and and culturally how sometimes those of us that are square pegs for whatever reason find it difficult to fit in. Um, and so this is why I love your story so much. And I'm just touched by it. Will you talk about your first mention president is someone I know of, I don't know him personally, Larry Gelwicks. Um, and just talk, you've said some nice things in your post about him, and and maybe there were some also difficult times with him. But talk about, you know, and I think he only served for six months with you, but once he got to know you, how did he sort of manage you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, in fact, he he and I served together for about 14 months. Oh, even. I've got that backwards. So you're 14 months. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, so <laughs> Larry Gelwicks is a man, a very, very good man who's very difficult to sum up in a single word or two. But um, he, uh, you know, he comes from a really successful background as a rugby coach, um, Highland Rugby over yeah. in Utah. You know, he. I he's, went, he's got some sizable victories there. I went to Highland High School, but that was before he got there to be our rugby coach. Uh, yeah. So I don't, I don't know. Some people might say he was old enough to be back then, but I, um, I think, uh, yeah, he was. He uh, and you could see it though. You could see his his experience in the ways that he would interact with us. He had this um, 
he was kind of the millennial whisperer, as it were. He, he sort of knew how people in my age group thought and how to interact with us, at least on a one-on-one -on -one basis. I think it was difficult to have that kind of personability with, um, with us when it was like a big zone conference or multiple zones. Because at one point we had over 300 missionaries. And I mean, how do you speak to over 320-something-year-olds who still don't even understand who they are? Um, but he and his wife, Kathy, both are um, tremendous people who've been nothing but warm and welcoming to me. I remember when I, when I first got to the mission um, into the field, uh, one of my good friends from Texas was there to meet me, and that was supposed to be the because uh, he was serving in the same mission, and that was supposed to be sort of the the safety net that was going to catch homesick me, and it didn't work. Um, and I remember filling out a little personality survey while I was waiting to get my personal interview with the mission president that I was going to I was about to meet, and just being on the verge of tears because I was just so homesick and I didn't know what to do with myself and. You know, to use your language, as you said before, but I knew for a fact that I didn't fit in and I wasn't sure that I belonged even. And that was a really scary thing to be considering when you knew that you have, nine, you have 23 months at the very least left of your mission um, if you're not going to come home early. And so I remember getting into the office with Larry and um, sitting down. He, he sat in his chair right across from me, no, no desk or anything between us, almost knee to knee. And he just, you know, would ask me some pretty standard questions to get to know me. And he very quickly picked up on where I was. And I remember just breaking up, breaking down and just, I, I couldn't speak. And I just started crying. And I remember him just getting up and getting me a little cup of water and just handing it to me and just kind of comforting me. And uh, I wanted so badly to try to articulate to him where this, this discomfort was coming from. And I failed so abysmally to do it at that time. But I remember just feeling very confident that if I was to speak with this person again, that he would hear me, that he would um, honor where I was coming from, that there wouldn't be a, an ecclesiastical filter, as it were. This is a really good story of just pastoral care um, from a priesthood leader to a member of his mission in this case. That's very intriguing to me. <laughs> Um, and it seems like a great success story. Talk about just these next 14 months with President Gelwix. And um, it sounds like in this first visit, he, you know, he picks up some things, but you maybe, but I'm assuming this relationship evolved over the next year plus. Yes. Um, actually, in fact, I, I've never experienced a mission or a mission leader yeah, I've never experienced a mission leader quite like Larry Gelwix. And you, you know, you know, from my, my Facebook post, for instance, that the gentleman who came after him, he and I had some very, very big conflicts. Um, so I think that that serves to emphasize just how much of a good relationship I had with Larry. Um, I remember this one moment uh, when I was really allowed to kind of let myself shine. There, there was this thing that Larry would do in zone conferences to really fire up the missionaries. And he would, he had like his favorite go-to stories and phrases and ideas, and they, they were good. Um, but there was this one that kind of troubled me a little bit. And he, I can't remember it word for word, obviously, but it was something along the lines of God is not some amorphous, unembodied, distant cloud in the sky. Like most of the Christian world seems to believe, or most of the Christian world believes. And it was, 
it was that last part that I took a little bit of issue with that most of the Christian world believes, because I knew from experience that there's a lot of the Christian world that doesn't necessarily believe in a or remote, very punitive, very disapproving God. And I remember having a, a private interview with him, just one of the regularly scheduled ones. And he said, do you have any correction for me? And I was, I was partly nervous, but also had that, uh, very millennial brashness of being like 20 years old and ready to tell everybody what I thought. Um, and I, I just kind of brought that up with him. And I said that I feel like it, it, it can potentially foster an unhelpful us against them mentality that I think will only cause more damage than good as missionary uh, to us as missionaries. And he said, you know what? I, uh, I agree. And mm-hmm. we, we talked a little bit about, um, the the us against them kind of spirit that was troubling me in in our own mission field. And I remember after that conversation, a zone conference where he pulled out again, this, this same phrase and this distinct absence of that ending part, like the Christian world believes that he had dropped that off. And I felt very heard because of that. I felt like a mission leader had actually heard one of, uh, had heard me in particular, as opposed to just sort of going through a motion of, I'm going to make you feel like you're a part of the gang by asking you if you have any correction, and then I'm going to forget it afterward. You know, that simple story brought is brought tears to my eyes, that a mission president with all that, you know, the keys, the standing, the experience, he's a, a seasoned business executive, a, an successful, successful rugby coach. I live in Salt Lake City. He's a well-known you know, person here, but he asked mm-hmm. you, you know, what you what suggestions you have for him. The humility of that really touches me, but more importantly, he listened and he implemented your suggestions and he was teachable. And that is such a beautiful principle um, that I've tried to honor that, you know, millennials, people with less maybe world experience or business experience, may have insights that will help me be a better disciple or help me be a better YSA bishop. That's a pretty powerful, um, that's a pretty powerful example. And I think you helped him and I think you helped the whole mission. Others examples of of Larry Gowicks um, and his wife and just helping you feel like you belong the way you are in this mission. Um, yeah, I, well, I mean, I want to, I want to sing some praises for Kathy Gelwix as well. She was, um, really pivotal in helping me to maintain a lot of what I didn't know at the time was very heavy depression and anxiety. Um, she, she's a person who, as far as I understand, has been fairly open about her own struggles with depression. And, um, as part of that, she was sort of the, um, the mental health guru, as it were, when it came to, uh, us missionaries, I had a companion who, suffered through a depression that required therapy, uh, some, some pretty intensive therapy, in fact. And the question of whether or not he might require some medication to help him manage with this condition uh, also came up to mind. And I remember watching him read these very interesting books on how to, how to more productively manage your emotions, not from like, you know, uh, just any old self-help guru, but from actual psychologists and practicing therapists and hearing that he had gotten these books from Kathy Gelwicks and uh, knowing from experience that she had given each area this, um, this CD called the relaxation CD that was basically a bunch of body meditations. Wow. 
was my first introduction to meditation, in fact, and I was very grateful for it. I think they came in like five, 15-minute, and I think 30-minute versions. And uh, they were basically just to get you to calm your whole system down from this anxious, tense state. So I I really am grateful to her. She she was my first introduction, I think, to um, good mental health. Um, One more story with Larry, in fact, as well. Uh, I remember halfway through my mission when I was outside Yosemite National Park, um, I hit this fever pitch. I had gotten into an argument with one of my district leaders where basically what he had told me was, I I had taken some great pains to try to open up to him and try to describe to him how I saw the gospel. And it was one of those moments where a very absolute version of the gospel encountered my own perspective and saw it as kind of a a potential threat. And I remember we got into a very big argument as a result. And uh, I remember... um, (laughs) I remember ending ending that argument really flatly by telling him... Well... Basically, what he had told me was, look, Elder Smith, you can believe whatever you want to believe so long as you're baptizing. And I remember looking him in the eye and saying one of the most immature things I think I've ever said in my life, which was, Elder so-and-so, I don't give a crap what you think about what I believe. And obviously, that was the worst possible decision in that moment. And I ended up uh, privately apologizing to him, and he became a friend, in fact. But between that apology and that argument... Um, I hit this fever pitch of feeling very unwelcome as a missionary, and I, I sort of dumped that into an email to Larry. And I remember, um, I remember part of it as well was there was a gentleman in our mission who he was a senior missionary, and he was very well read with Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce R. McConkie, so he was kind of that that um, that particular perspective in the church. And he would give these lengthy lectures, and I remember he um, he made this sort of pot shot at something that I'm very passionate about, which is the theory of evolution, which officially speaking, the church is a neutral stance on. Um, And as a missionary, I was obviously not to teach for or against evolution by any means. And I was totally all right with that. But what I was not all right with was he takes this pot shot, the whole chapel erupts into laughter, and uh, it leaves this feeling as if Mormonism is in entirely inherently incompatible with evolution. So that was something that sort of prompted me to email Larry. And I just sort of dumped all this on him. And after a few emails back and forth, I think he finally got a grasp of who I was and where I was coming from. And I remember him just having these very, um, how do I put it, down-to-earth conversations. In, in, in zone conferences, he could be very grandiose and very, um, you know, he's got that, that big language of inspiration and the like when he's talking to a bunch of missionaries. But when he was talking to me, it was just very practical advice. And one of them was to develop a sense of humor, um, which which is absolutely something that has saved my skin since then. But, um, yeah, I just, I just remember him taking the time to really get to know me um, and to speak to me in my own needs as opposed to trying to pull me into what he may have very likely have wanted me to be as a missionary. I'm really touched by that story. I'm touched by one of the phrases you used to describe him is um, very connected to millennials. You had a better phrase there, but just that even though this, you know, mission president is not a millennial, he had, I don't know if this is rugby coaching days or just the way he's wired, he had a way to authentically connect. And I love this sort of duo skill set he has, the zone leader, Maybe that's the head coach and the creating a vision, but then he has this one-on-one ability to minister and 
listen and create space and give you a feeling like you belong, you know, and and just the opposite. You don't feel very welcome. You feel welcome. Um, it's just, an, it's a very, and sometimes, you know, it's just a interesting thing for me because I want to scale that. I think that the principles he's using there in that mission for you, I, w- I hope all local leaders and parents able to see some skill there because here you are. We need you um, in this mission. You're going to reach people. You're going to teach companions things that no one else is going to teach them. I think that's what Elder Gelwicks is concluding about you. Now I've made him elder from president. Um, <laughs> that's all right. And um, yeah. and your ability to help people come into Christ through our church. So I'm thinking of what he's done here and, and how to scale that for other leaders because we want people well, like you to stay. Um, we, need, we need people like you. Um, you can help us become the church we need to become and reach people that no one else can reach. And and I think God's made you a square peg, so to speak, in a really good way. Any more thoughts about Larry Gelwick's or missionary companions that were helpful and created space for you and and or just and go yeah go ahead and answer that. Yeah, certainly. Um, to your point in fact about scaling, um, because I, I agree wholeheartedly, I would very much like to see the same kind of spirit that uh, inspired Larry Gelwick's to be universal in people's experiences in the church. And I think a big rule of thumb of that is um, there's a, a saying from Confucius that uh, ideas do not make people great. People make ideas great. And it's this sense in Confucianism that um, what's most important is not the ideas, but the people. And I think that the inverse of that is what sometimes causes mission leaders, mission presidents and the like to feel the need to cram their missionaries into this idea of what the ideal missionary or the ideal Mormon is. And I think in Larry Gelwick's case, he was willing to see that, look, ideas can be useful tools. But what matters most is the people, that people are what make these ideas great. And I think that that's the, the general difference between a church that focuses very much on correlation versus a church that focuses on community. Um, another really great example of this was a very good friend of mine, um, a companion of mine. He was, uh, he was at the very end of his mission when he met me. I was his last uh, transfer, and he was his own leader for a while for a long while, actually. And this was about halfway through my mission, and obviously at the end of his mission. And I remember him telling me these stories that zone leaders would share about me. And this was part of how I learned about a lot of the nasty rumors that would circulate about me. And um, it was a story about the time when I was in Yosemite, which was about a quarter of the way through my mission. And uh, one of the, I think, the zone leader who was presiding over me at the time was sort of just kind of gossiping about me to uh, this other zone leader, to who I, the young man who would become my companion. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, Elder Smith, he's, he's really struggling right now. And I, I really, to this day, still don't know what he meant by struggling at that time in Yosemite. I was happy as a clam. But um, this, this missionary who became my companion, he told me, I remember hearing this and seeing all these people, you know, think like, oh, yeah, Elder Smith, struggling, struggling. And thinking to myself how much I just wanted to go meet you and not to fix you, just to meet you. And I very much wish that that was the approach that other missionaries had taken with me, because while I understand that I was 
I was prickly and I was critical of a lot of people. I wasn't uh, I wasn't a villain and I certainly was not a cancer. And I think that people would have found that just like this companion did, especially his realization when he was telling me this story, by just coming and speaking to me. He was he was a tremendous example to me of um, of genuine heartfelt Christian discipleship, and I'm very grateful for him and the time I got to spend with him. What's his name? His name is Blake. He's a uh, he is I think in Georgia now. I think he's actually working toward a PhD. Wow. Um, I love those stories. Talk about um, one of the things that I think triggered this Facebook post was the change in policy to be able to come talk every week with family. And obviously you were on the policy where you didn't talk every week with family. Yeah. Um, Talk about how that would have helped you and how you weren't weak because, you know, you weren't, you know, just how that would have helped you. And it's not that the church is adapting because missionaries are weaker. It's just the church is adapting because it helps missionaries be better. Yes, I, I think that uh, that's hitting the nail right on the head. In fact, um, you know, it's, it's it's difficult to describe. I think in too broad of terms. But for me personally, I know for a fact that a lot of the a lot of the struggles that I had, and in fact, a lot of the mistakes that I personally made, would have been much more effectively mitigated had I had more continuous and constant access to people who were older than me. Um, you, you know, when you're a missionary, you're just sort of uh, lost and alone with a whole bunch of other 20-something-year-olds. And the difference between the rest of, you know, missionaries is not so much how mature one is over the other as much as it is how good one is pre- good is at pretending to be mature. And, uh, you know, we just we didn't have the kind of adult experience that a Larry Gelwick's or a Kathy Gelwick's could bring us or that my mom or dad could give me. You know, I, if I had um, if I had told my dad the following Monday the the response I had given this stressed out response I had given to this district leader, he probably would have laughed at me. Uh, whereas I would have spent you know I spent two weeks fuming, feeling you know like I was you know I was feeling righteous indignation. You know, I just needed someone to to point out that life was just not that serious. And Larry Gelwicks was very helpful in that regard, but I only got to speak to him very briefly through emails once a week. So, you know, this increased communication, I think, allows us to bring the support systems that we can cultivate back at home with us into the mission field. And I don't just mean support systems um, in an emotional sense, though I think that that's absolutely critical as well, but support systems in a developmental sense. You know, you learn by having people who know better kind of point out what you're doing wrong every now and again, offering you correction. And there's obviously wrong ways to do that, but there's a lot of right ways to do that. And when you cut off that, that um, when you cut off those relationships altogether, or even just let them trickle in through just, you know, little short emails for 90 minute windows once a week, then you really end up cutting off some very critical lifeblood to missionaries. And I'm very grateful that the church has, uh, has made this change. I think that it's, it's something desperately needed in some places and just very much needed in general. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that. And tell, what would you kind of, you know, if you go back and talk about the conversations you would have had, um, who would you have talked to um, at home? 
and what life events, I mean, how would it have connect you in a better way so that it would have helped you as a missionary to be able to be connecting with home? Would you ask your ask people at home about your investigators or shared some of your anxiety, depression? Would it have helped some of that? Just talk about how it would have helped you be a better missionary again. Absolutely. I think um, for me, I think I probably would have been much more emotionally well-adjusted, to be honest. At the time, I had a, an older sister. Uh, she's she's since completed her master's in marriage and family therapy, but during my mission, she was still going through that. And she ended up also marrying marrying um, her husband, Josh, who um, is who was working on his PhD in the same field that's how they met. And having access to mental health professionals who were in the midst of their training, even who were very, you know, very much had had ready access to great resources and great research to help me kind of learn how to manage my own emotions or to more productively interact with uh, other missionaries, I think would have been just of, of tremendous help. The only other alternative to that was probably just sort of going to the mission president's wife and saying, look, I think I need to visit with a therapist and, you know, getting again another maybe an hour a week with the um, implicit shame that I think unfortunately uh, comes with that in the mission field when it comes to um, visiting with a therapist. At least in my mission at times, it was kind of one of those things you just, you just didn't talk about. You didn't necessarily look down on someone for it by, by any means, but you, you just sort of didn't talk about it. I think that uh, another person I would have had much more conversation with uh, was my dad. When I came home from my mission, I remember having these really lengthy walks and talks with him, um, especially right after coming home. And we would have these these moments where I could just have my catharsis that I had been waiting two years to have to just be able to say whatever I wanted to say. Um, he was the kind of, kind of guy who could listen to his RM son fresh off the boat say, I don't think I want to be a Mormon anymore, and just hear me out. And... Um, I wish that I had had that as a missionary where I could, you know, continuously and regularly help work off all of this negative affect instead of letting it build for two years and then having to deal with this seismic monster instead afterward. You have great vocabulary, Nathan. I could just stop the <laughs> podcast and and you have these phrases that I've never heard anybody put together that are very visual for me, and it's just a great gift that you have. And um, I, I'm going to move on from your mission. We're going to link to this Facebook post you did and in our podcast because it's a it's a wonderful story of an honest story, and to me, it's a faith building story of a mission. and And talk about um, this period of time you've been home from your mission. I think 2013, you came home. Yes. Yeah, so, in March 2013. And we're recording this in May of 2019, so you've been home six years. Uh, talk about stepping away from the church. What caused you to step away? And I'm not sure you use that term. Just use your own vocabulary to describe uh -huh. what happened and why and just kind of that story. Maybe maybe a better phrase would be I kind of floated away, like uh, <laughs> on an inner tube, and I lost the edge, and I was just kind of like, oh, I don't know how to get back. What is, what's going on? Um can't swim apparently. But uh, for me, when I came back, um, so I came back and uh, I, I moved home. And I remember, I think I didn't go to church the first Sunday I got back, mostly because just it, it was a scheduling error. And I remember feeling so needlessly guilty 
and ashamed of not doing that. You know, I'm the RM. I'm supposed to be the example. And, you know, I'm supposed to, I, I guess I'm supposed to sell missionary work to people now that I'm back and stuff. And I just didn't do it. And, uh, I think that, uh, a lot of the emotional stuff that I just struggled with as a missionary, a lot of the experiences I had that made me sort of resent the church quite a bit and resent Mormons quite a bit really colored how I, 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 I uh, experienced the church after my mission. So I had a, I had an older sister, uh, my sister, Sally, who, um, insisted to me pretty thoroughly. She was living up in Provo, Utah at the time. And she insisted to me when she came down to visit that I would be moving up out of home, up to Provo. She had, uh, put together uh, an apartment already that I could uh, sign up for and, you know, put my money down for, and all of that worked out. And we had uh, friends from our, our home who were also there studying at BYU. And uh, so I moved up to Provo and I started going to BYU and I, I met like, I had like three roommates in my first apartment. One of them was very withdrawn. The other two were like old high school buddies, like old school Utah Mormon buddies. And, um, all good people by, by all means. But I, I just, I had a hard time getting to know any of them, mostly because we were just, all of us were in and out. We all had different things, different jobs, different, um, different things we had to take care of. And while they were kind enough to give me rides to and from church, I just I had such a hard time, um, getting to know them. And when I moved and, you know, you move down the street and you're in another stake in Utah. Um, when I moved, I ended up in another ward and I remember, uh, I would, I, I, I had a meeting with the bishop there and I, I, I know Richard, you were a YSA bishop and I, I know for a fact, this is not all YSA bishops, certainly, but this gentleman was, um, I, I think that there were some things he could have done better. I remember in this meeting, he, um, he said, uh, brother Smith, I, I contacted your previous bishop and he says he doesn't know you. Are you active? And that really, for me, that really hurt. Because it also came on the tail end of him asking me if I was following the commandments out of nowhere, which was a very strange question for someone like myself who didn't, you know, grow up with Mormonism as my culture. It was it was just a really kind of pressing question to ask for me personally. But um, I, I remember just thinking to myself, like, what on earth are you talking about? It's a YSA. Everyone's moving in and out. He didn't know me, so I'm not active. And uh, I, you know, I. I, uh, I was most active in that ward and ironically inactive in the, uh, ward where I was speaking to the bishop. So, you know, that showed him, I guess, but, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of those things that I think I just, I just felt very alone as a Mormon. And, uh, I felt very out of step with the rest of the church where a lot of my big life goals were supposed to be happening. Like, for instance, I'd, I'd very much like to be a husband and a father someday. And in large part, that's done through the temple and everything in Mormon culture. And when you feel entirely uncomfortable and alienated at church, temple is kind of out of the question. So um, after that, I, I ended up dropping out of BYU. And uh, partly because of financial reasons, there was a weird mix-up with my FAFSA and I, I couldn't sign up for classes, and my FAFSA wasn't coming through, and so it, it, I just had to cut my losses and bail out for a minute. And then I just decided, look, I, I uh, at the time I wanted to be a professional novelist, and so I just decided, look, Provo is not the place for me to do this. Austin is way more art, artsy and 
you know, has much better communities. I'm, I'm a part of what's called the Writers League of Texas here. Um, one of the biggest writers groups here in Texas and uh, made really good friends who have been real longtime members of the industry because of it. And so it was because of all of those resources I moved down here to Texas and I uh, moved back in temporarily with my folks because it's expensive to live in Austin and it uh, compared to how dirt cheap it was to live in Provo. And uh, I just stopped going. I just stopped going to church. I just lost interest. And after a while, I just kind of felt like, hmm, I don't miss it. And I, I know that sounds kind of uh, maybe alarming to people who are, you know, much more active, obviously. But for me, I just, for me, church attendance represented pain. And I didn't miss it. Church re- attendance represented pain and I didn't miss it. And you used this term before we went live, social alienation, to describe mm. your Sunday experience and I've just learned to honor how people feel, Nathan. When people tell me that now, I've felt some of that myself, um, not to the degree you have, but I, I recognize that the Sunday experience for believing members can sometimes, they don't fit in and they don't feel valued and their voice doesn't seem important and their perspective and their worldview. And, um, it, you know, and so I just, the culture can be very difficult and I don't fault you. This is how you felt. Who can... How could I say you shouldn't feel the way you feel? I think the agency kicks in is what are you going to do with how you feel? Because um, I don't think, you know, that's to me your your lived experience. And I can't sort of say, well, really you felt that way or you shouldn't have felt that way or you misread that experience and sort of you have to spend the next five minutes telling me, yeah, I really feel this way. And that doesn't seem fair. That just adds to your burden. But to validate how you feel seems like a pastoral principle of ministering and saying, wow, that's painful, and I honor how you feel. And so I've certainly learned to listen to stories of people that have, you know, had these kind of experiences and and honor those experiences, and I have great respect f- for everybody on their journey. And, and some days, Sunday is not emotionally healthy for some of our members, and it's triggering, and it and I think we need to look inward to see how can we improve the experience at church so that people can belong and we can create space. And the body of Christ, I love Corinthians where it talks about the arms and the hands and the eyes and the feet. I'm not sure it talks about everything, every part of the body, but every part of the body is needed. And Elder Holland talks about the choir and, excuse me, his choir doesn't have altos. It has sopranos and tenors and that creates a beautiful harmony. So if you step away, we're missing part of the harmony that's needed. It's the harmony that was present in President Gellick's mission. As you reach people and brought, you know, insights into other missionaries, I'll bet other missionaries ended up turning to you um, for complex situations of investigator situations that, well, Elder Smith will know what to do, or he'll have some ideas here. And and so we've lost you from the body of Christ. <laughs> Um, during this time, and I honor that. Talk about why you decided to, uh, what you, whatever vocabulary you want to use, to just say I'm mm-hmm. I, I'm coming back, or I've come back, or I'm considering coming back. So bring us up to speed on where you are right now. Yeah. Um, well, for me, there's uh, there's two sides of me uh, right now on this issue because right now, I, I've, as I've told you, I'm. Uh, I'm, re, I'm, I'm attending my parents' wards off and on here, and 
just kind of sort of feeling my way through that. And uh, part of that was because, and I, I'd very much like to give a shout out to her, uh, an artist, an LDS artist named uh, Megan Guileman. She's a photographer. She does this this collection called Works of Translation, and you can find it at works of tra- worksoftranslation.com. And uh, she she does these staged photographs, these really beautiful, very intricate pieces. And one of them that was my absolute favorite, the one that attracted my attention the most, was um, it was titled Joseph's Book of the Dead. And it depicted, kind of inspired by the Book of Abraham and the funeral papyri that had inspired the Book of Abraham. Um, it depicts Joseph sitting across the table from a man dressed as Anubis. And he's having his heart weighed against this feather from the god Mayot, who symbolizes truth. And so it's this idea of having Joseph's very inner core weighed against truth. It's this, this image of self-exploration and introspection. And I remember looking at that and feeling it's very distinctly Mormon flavor and kind of having a moment of introspection myself. And um, I, I realized that Mormonism is very much a part of my DNA, and yet it was also something that I had sort of dissociated from. And I had never really come to a firm decision on it as to whether or not I want to be an ex-Mormon or whether or not I want to be an active uh, Mormon. And I, I felt that uh, absence of an answer. There's a, there's a Zen story I really like about these, uh, that I think illustrates this very well. Um, the, there's these, uh, these two Buddhist monks who are walking along this road, and they find a woman who's sort of blocked by this very large, very deep mud puddle. And one of the Buddhist monks offers to carry her over the mud puddle. And in, in uh, the laws of the monastery, it's very strictly forbidden to even touch a woman. So he picks her up, and he carries her across the mud and sets her back down and sends her on her way. And his companion is just fuming at the whole thing. At the whole thing, for the whole walk, he's just you know ruminating in his head: How can he do this? What's wrong with him? Is he even a monk? And um, he he finally you know erupts at his companion and he says, you know, how could you uh, how could you carry that woman? You know, we're not even supposed to even really look at women. How could you carry her? And uh, the monk who carried the woman says, I left her back there. Are you still carrying her? And I think that that, for me personally, expresses very much my own feelings about my mission that made me feel very alienated as a Mormon. Um, I had left all of those experiences in California, and I realized I was still carrying them. The alienation that I felt from a lot of uh, uh, members was not necessarily me responding to these particular people, but me responding to this or that zone leader or district leader or um, this or that other mission leader who had perhaps been less than caring or less than Christ-like with me. And uh, it was that moment of introspection that made me curious to see if the me now, the me that uh, had time to process these experiences and to learn um, a number of uh, methods of cultivating emotional intelligence and maybe a little bit more mature spirituality, if I could get anything out of being a Mormon, even if I can't fit in, and I've known that I've always had a very complicated relationship with the church, and I think that that will probably be the same way throughout my entire life, I wanted to know if I could belong. And so I'm, I'm in that phase of trying to feel my way forward and see if there's a place for me in, the, uh, in any Mormon community. What can... If I were your bishop or your friend or your parent or if you had opened up to me, what's the, and this is kind of for other local leaders or parents that 
you know, are hearing a story and your story resonates with them and they're saying, I want to do the right thing so you belong here. What could I do or what helps you feel that you belong? Um, I think just getting to know me. I think that there's a sense in which we feel that being a good Latter-day Saint means defending the institution and defending this culturally agreed-upon image of what the ideal Latter-day Saint looks like. And I think that that can be tremendously alienating when we're trying to talk to people who may not feel very welcome, or at least may not feel like they fit in. I think that one of the biggest helps can be to set aside what and I recognize that this is very difficult and I'm not good at it either, but to set aside what you believe should be done, set aside what you believe this person should be and try to get to know them as they are and to trust them when they speak. I think that there's, um, when we deviate and exceed this, um, this ideal image of what the best Latter-day Saint looks like, I think that there's a sense of anxiety that comes with it and we feel like we're, we're um, transgressing or even sinning. And I think that um, that kind of poisons how we listen to people, where we stop trusting them, where we think, oh, well, you know, you don't, you don't really have these questions. You're just kind of, you know, you're not praying enough. You're not reading enough. You're, perhaps you just want to sin, you know, in the more extreme cases, obviously. But um, I think that just listening to people with trust, being willing to hear them out instead of um, being the, the one monk who's, so very angry for you doing something that they don't understand. I, I think that that's the best way. Integrating the person instead of um, trying to get them to integrate the church. Wow. You have a great way of communication. Integrating the person versus in a, integrating the church. I, I circled something and wrote it down. Trust them when they speak. Just very, very insightful stuff, <laughs> Nathan. And I realize... <laughs> You know, you're 25 and I'm 58, and I just think what the next, you know, 30 years will do and what your role will be and your ability to help others. And, you know, you're just, I just, when I meet somebody like you, I just want to kind of wrap my arms around you and say, I hope you can stay because we need you. And you can help us become the church we need to be. And you can be an example for others that they can belong in their differences and we need differences. And everything you've talked about, everything we visited beforehand, the prayer you offered is all about coming into Christ and living his doctrine and, and how our church can help us to do that. And, and I think there's multi and just the insights that we all have on best how to do that. And it doesn't have to be one monolithic approach, but it can be, um, beautiful in our beauty and our differences. One of your gifts is to bring all the good you're learning outside of our church and the additional religious scholars you're studying, which I think is healthy to bring um, further insight into the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is very helpful. Um, we're kind of near the end of the podcast. Are there, are there parts that we haven't covered that you want to go back to? Oh, um, well, I mean, there's just, there's a billion stories to tell. <laughs> and I think that, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, <laughs> to be, to be that guy, I could tease them by saying the, the moment I was wrongfully accused of having porno and I didn't on my mission, that was fun. Wow. But, um, you know, it's just, there's just a billion stories to tell. And 
I think this summer, but I think we've hit the kind of the general themes of it though. And I think we are edging towards some of the antidotes to the, uh, the pathologies I think that can lead to crummy experiences like that. Do you see when you project your life in the church, you want to be married and have a family. Do you see a certain path for you? Do you have a, like a dream calling or a, a dream scenario where you and your wife and a few kids or I know you want to become, you're going to get a graduate degree. I believe in you tell us and you want to become a therapist before you answer that, just tell us where you are in your academic path. Yeah, I'm, I'm slowly but surely making my way through a psychology undergrad with my mission. And I, I took a couple of years off in fact, to um, be an independent uh, novelist. And I wrote four novels as a result um, I, I just sort of have a bit of a late start, shall we say. So I'm, I'm working through that and I have some intentions of going to grad school after under, under, uh, undergrad to, um, the plan right now is to get a, a degree in marriage and, or a master's in marriage and family therapy, but that could change because the, the, the biggest goal is I would just, I'd like to be a therapist in some respect. And, um, I think you'd be a great therapist. So thank you. I've, Thank you you have some incredible interpersonal skills and some credible way to draw stories out of people that I think you'd be a great therapist, you'd be a great religious scholar, you'd be a great, um, you just have a lot of different paths. And when I meet someone your age, I, I usually don't become prescriptive and say what you want to do, but I just say go for it. And you've got some wonderful, unique gifts and just keep moving forward. I love Elder Bednar's talk about the fog, and sometimes all you can see is the next step or two to take, and you take it, and the fog just kind of keeps lifting, and you see the next couple of steps. So I think some at your age, there's no fog, and we celebrate those stories, but most have a lot of fog in their future yeah. career, and so they just do what you're doing. You're taking the next steps you can take, and you're moving in a direction. Talk about your ideal path in the church, do you sort of say, okay, this is what my ideal, how it looks, or do you go that direction? Like a favorite calling and just that kind of stuff. Well, I'd like to aim humble. I think maybe apostle or prophet would do. (laughs) Um, Just, you know, God, king of the uh, entire church would be all right with me. Um, (laughs) I mean, if you ask certain people. But uh, for me, I don't know. I've I've always... um, I've had some of the most negative experiences being an instructor in the church, and yet I love that calling the most. I, they, there was a mistake made once of made, making me a gospel principles instructor, and that was just a nightmare that I loved every minute of. Um, I, I just love teaching, and I love sharing, and I'm getting better at um, cultivating conversations in a room instead of just sort of doing what I tend to do, which be, is sort of you know, don my professor's suit and just begin my uh, dissertation presentation on uh, this or that topic. I love to teach and I love to hear other people, you know, what their insights are from, you know, things that we're discussing. I I am getting better at understanding that people may in fact be in possession of things that I don't already know. And uh, instead of just expecting people to uh, assume that I know everything that they don't already know. And I I really like that. So I I think I'd like to be an instructor in the church. And I have some vague feelings about being a temple worker of some kind. I very much enjoy the temple. I'm very pleased with the latest changes. 
Um, in fact, they had to do with some stuff that the first moment I went through the endowment, those were my biggest uh, concerns. And to see them altered in the right direction, I believe, was uh, was very, very uplifting. And I, I, I know that there's a lot of mourning that goes on among a, a number of women in the church who have been making that suggestion for a long time and being sort of you know, disregarded or even belittled, and now it's revelation because it came from the authority figures. And I, but I, I just, I have a, I have a deep love for the temple. I think it's messy. I think it's trying to express something really beautiful. And as a writer, I, I totally get the idea of I have this big idea and I don't know the words to say it, and I need to go back and edit this, and I need to go back and say it a different way. But I want you to understand what I'm trying to say. And I think that the temple is just a beautiful embodiment of that. And I think I'd like to be a part of that if I could. That's really cool. That is really cool. And I love everything you just said there with the changes, how women felt, how we sometimes called women unfaithful for being uncomfortable with parts of the temple. And now that has changed and it's given me a framework. If people are uncomfortable with other things, I need to honor that and, and that may change or it may not, but it's okay to be uncomfortable if people are sort of advocating for a change and but that and sort of become an activist for change. I'm uncomfortable with that. But if people are just uncomfortable, I think yeah. it's good to give them permission to be uncomfortable and not sort of put it back on them to pray harder to or to get a testimony of something that it's difficult for them to feel okay about. Uh, I, I'd love to be in your class, Nathan, (laughs) with you teaching gospel doctrine. I I love this phrase you use cultivating conversations. I love, you know, that sort of discussion in our Sunday school or priesthood release society where we're talking and we're sharing and we're learning and we're creating authentic connections versus just kind of a lecture format. Um, so that's really kind of resonates with me. And, uh, so Nathan, it's just great to have you on the podcast and uh, I tell our listeners how they find you, give them your Twitter handle. Cause I know that's really where I connected with you is on Twitter. Give them your Twitter handle and how to find you on Facebook. Yeah. Um, so my Twitter handle is at Nate Smith S N F. And, uh, I also am, yeah, as you said, on Facebook, I, I have a little author page at facebook.com forward slash Nathan Smith books. And uh, I also run a blog and you can also read my books on this website called Nathan Smith uh, That's, that's most that's where I spend most of my time online. That's great. And, and I've got contact info there too. If anyone wants to like email me or anything like that. Good. And keep writing, keep talking, keep sharing your thoughts because it helps me and and any concluding thoughts you've got, Nathan, before we sign off? Um, yeah, I mean, if you don't mind, I, uh, there's a little story that I feel like has Good. helped me kind of grasp um, my own reactions to, say, LGBT members of the church, as, as was my first introduction to your podcast, in fact, was interviews with um, LGBT members and uh, people who had since maybe disconnected from the church as well. Um uh, this story, I think, sets the kind of the, the spirit of what I think you're going for as well and what I, I think the church should indeed go for. It's a, it's a Hindu story, and it's, uh, it's about a time, a really long time ago, before shoes, when the earth was very, uh, very much just as unforgiving on our feet and on our knees as it is today. 
And, uh, you know, everybody's walking around and they're cutting their feet and they're stubbing their toes and they're scraping their knees. And so the king calls together all his clever men and uh, says, you know, we got, we got this big problem. We're causing ourselves a lot of pain. Fix it. And so the clever men put all their heads together and they um, come up with this big solution that they take to the king. He says, they say, we'll take all of our livestock, we'll kill all of it as a sacrifice to our local gods, and then we'll skin it all. And then we'll make all these really comfy pelts and we'll cover the whole earth with comfy pelts. And we won't scrape our knees or stub our toes or cut our feet anymore. And the king says, oh, that's a great idea. But an even more clever man came in and said, I've got a better idea. Instead of killing all of the livestock as a sacrifice, just kill a few animals. Kill a few animals, take their pelts, and instead of covering the whole earth, cover your feet. And uh, I think that is the, the spirit that we're proceeding in. Instead of attempting to change the whole world around us, we're, we are doing what I think Christ would have us do, which is changing ourselves, trying to become a more welcoming community to people who have felt most alienated, um, including our LGBT siblings, our uh, people who have uh, felt you know, pushed away by historical issues or theological issues or even just social issues within the church. I think that uh, if we're going to become the kind of church that Christ would like us to be, it's going to be by way of that introspection and that willingness to look at ourselves first, to pull the plank from our own eyes so that we can then see clearly to help our uh, our siblings with the splinters in their eyes. I love that, Nathan. I love the visual you just created with the words and the thoughts. So you have a gift of communication and visualizing things in my mind. Um, it's one of your Christ-like attributes. We talk about preach me go- preach my gospel chapter six and. And some of that comes hardwired with us, and you have some of that. But I love when I meet someone like you, um, just my encouragement to use these Christ-like attributes and these gifts and skills you have to to bless humanity through your future, if you become a therapist, through your work in the church, and through your role as a husband and father. And, and uh, it would just be fun to watch your life. So thank you, Nathan Smith, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Thanks to Tom Garbett, our producer, who puts all these things up. Um, appreciate Tom. And Tom and others encourage me to remind you to rate our podcast. I think that helps people become more aware of it. And so anything that our listeners can do to share these podcasts with others is much appreciated.